Welcome to the Fourth U Dimension, the podcast uh, that is a production of the Fourth Universalist Society uh, in the city of New York as part of our religious education program. Uh, this month, we're talking about community and identity and how those relate to each other, the interactions around uh, these concepts and how they feed into each other and how we develop our uh, identities as related to communities and all the different interactions. And I am very excited uh, to have on as a special guest, uh, L. Dowd, who is a candidate for ministry in the ELCA, a community organizer, uh, and an up and coming author who I'm very excited to be uh, buying her book in the near future. Uh, so L, could you tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you. It's so good to be here. Uh, uh, my name is Elle. I use pronouns like she, her, and hers. And like you said, I'm a candidate for ordained ministry in the ELCA. So right now I just finished up a pastoral internship position at St. Luke's in Logan Square in Chicago, and I'm awaiting my first call. And in the meantime, I'm continuing to parent my kids and do community organizing with the organizations that I partner with here in the city. And finish up stuff for my book, which will be out for pre-order in January. That's uh, pretty exciting stuff to be having the book about. Uh, what's the what's the book about, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so the book is about my time in St. Louis during the Ferguson Uprising. Before I came to seminary in Chicago, I lived in Missouri and I worked for the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri in the bishop's office. And I had only been working there for a few months before uh, white police officer Darren Wilson shot and killed unarmed teenager Michael Brown. And the response from the community, uh, as you know, was, was enormous. And so my book is about the ways that that transformed me. I grew up in the suburbs of Des Moines, Iowa, grew up like in a very white uh, world. And the book is primarily about my conversion from a white moderate into a police and prison abolitionist. It's exciting stuff. Uh, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, I'm very excited to, <laughs> to be reading yeah. it in the near future. Um, so uh, one of the words that I know that you've uh, used to describe yourself, and it's actually in like the tag of, of this podcast, uh, is by furious. Uh, do you think you yeah. could elaborate a little bit on like that term and uh, yeah. how that relates to your identity and like uh, maybe even how that's also interacted with your theology and your work? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of layers, even just to that one term uh, by furious. And part of it is that part of um, bisexual culture is like a love of puns. <laughs> and so it is a play on uh, the term by curious, which is, um, you know, a term that people use for people who are maybe like exploring their sexuality. And it, it seems, you know, it's not always used this way, but it's sort of in, in many ways is used as like a dismissive term like, oh, you know, she's just by curious. She's just exploring. This is just a stage. It's not real. Um, and so it's a play on words of that. And instead is by furious. Um, there is this meme out there that talks about like the stages of coming out for bisexuals. And, you know, it's like stage one is like, um, I think I might not be straight. And then stage two is like, I think I might be bisexual. And then stage three is like, 
I'm bisexual and I'm mad about it. And (laughs) I just like relate to that a lot. Um, I grew up internalizing so much, uh, by phobia that once I finally was able to come out, finally was able to like come to terms with like who I am and how this like affects me and is a part of me. I had a lot of anger at the ways that society had sort of tried to turn me against myself for all of these years. And so, uh, particularly after the Pulse massacre, I was more out than ever before. I had been out for years, but I was, um, after, after Pulse, I kind of say I became militantly bisexual. And so that's all related a lot to calling myself bifurious is, um, in many ways, like reclaiming, um, this righteous anger about the ways that our identities are told that we're told that our identities don't matter. It's some really good insights. I, I particularly appreciate the insight about the puns. This really makes a lot more <laughs> sense of my experience with the wider LGBT community uh, as a trans woman. Yeah. I think we all just love our puns, but you know, the bisexuals definitely do seem to have the market on on the best of them. I think it's because bi rhymes with so many things. And it's also like bi can easily be put into like any, you know, one syllable B word. It's just like very easy uh it's it's like easy to do a lot of puns that have relationship to being bisexual so it's just the opportunities are endless right i know for uh for our book club i just finished uh the stonewall generations Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the stories is from a bisexual organizer who was doing the work back in the 80s uh, and sure enough she she did have like you know posters with all sorts of puns that they did uh on this on this march everything was some sort of uh, pun on bias. So it's, it's a long tradition, it seems yeah. going back decades. Yeah. One of my, um, one of my pride, uh, March signs was by kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I was like wearing my clergy stuff. So it was like a, and I wrote plenty, I wrote so many, <laughs> uh, papers in seminary that had bisexual puns in them. And it was like, I did a biblical interpretation, um, of Genesis that was like from bisexual lens. And it was like, you know, I spelled Bible in the title of the paper, like by dash bull, like emphasis on the by. So that one seems a little too easy. It's I know it's right there. It's right there. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, so how, how did, um, you know, being, uh, as you said, militantly bisexual, how do you think that influenced um, like the, this call to, to ministry, to do theological work and ministry work? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people ask me uh, why I'm so out and why, like, I talk about it so much, being bisexual. I think especially because my partner is a cis man, they're kind of like, why do you, um, why do you, yeah, why do you identify so hard with this? And what I say usually is that, you know, I had all of these experiences growing up as a bisexual woman that really deeply formed me. It formed my worldview. It formed how I view relationships. It formed how I view myself, God, the universe, other people. It informed what I think about sex. It informed um, all of these things, right? And so it wasn't as if once I got married to my spouse that I like 
that that all went away. Like those experiences are a part of me, right? Growing up, having girlfriends, feeling like I had to hide that, feeling like, you know, um, feeling like insecure about my place in the world or socially because of my identity, all of that, like deeply formed who I am. And I didn't just like graduate from being bisexual once I got married. So it definitely shows up, um, a lot in my ministry and in my public life, because the, especially the more I reflect on it, the more I see how much it really influences who I am. Like one example would be that I had this experience growing up that I know many of us have actually, especially those of us who are LGBTQIA plus, but where you just have this feeling like you're on the outside of everything or that like you don't quite fit in. And like, there was no necessarily, there wasn't necessarily like social things telling me I didn't fit in. Right. Like I did well in school. I was popular in school, like that stuff, you know, people wouldn't look at me growing up and be like, Oh, this person's a loner. They don't fit in. But to me, it felt like no one understood me. I was like from a different planet and looking back, I'm like, well, yeah, you're queer. And like, that was not allowed, you know, where you grow up and the culture that you grew up in. And so that experience of kind of like being on the outside or feeling like you don't fit in or feeling like your identity is not valid and the way it alienates us from community really has informed a lot of like who I am. And I think is a big reason why I care about things like racial justice or ending, you know, the exploitation of capitalism or all of these sort of other very important justice issues is it instilled in me the sense of like, knowing when the world's not working for you, the world isn't made for you, knowing, feeling out of place. And obviously, you know, people who have multiple intersecting identities, like there's black bisexual, you know, trans women out there who like really get this even more than me. But for me, it really informed like my sense of like compassion and justice. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm going to come back to that uh, on the outside feeling a little bit in a minute when we talk a little bit more about community. But so first, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, we're, we're looking at this theme of identity and we've already been hitting on it uh, quite a bit here. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, this, this term identity po- politics has such like a negative connotation. And so many people are like, well, claiming an identity is just like putting yourself into a box. Why do you want to put yourself into a box? Um, and like the, there's people that say, you know, that, that it's limiting. Do you think that there's some level of liberation that can be found in like claiming and understanding mm-hmm. our own identities, uh, especially mm-hmm. like as marginalized uh, identities? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think that when other people label us, it can be incredibly oppressive, right? So like when people give you a name or a, a label or an identity that like, wasn't chosen for you, wasn't chosen by you, was just like kind of like put on you. That is incredibly oppressive and can be really harmful. Um, But for me, that is really different than the idea of being able to sort of like name and claim ourselves and our own identity. Um, For me, it's been important to claim my identity as a bisexual woman because there is like we said, there's cultures and subcultures within bisexuality. But even more than that, there are many shared experiences 
that people sort of in my identity group have. And these shared experiences, these shared risk factors, like they matter, they matter in my day-to-day life and they matter like in how I show up to the world. And some of the experiences that I've had as a bisexual woman, because of the high risk factors um, of things like intimate, intimate partner violence that bisexual women, um, face disproportionately when compared to monosexual people, um, that has like, again, like formed who I am. And, uh, in naming, in naming for myself that I'm bisexual, it really helped make those experiences feel more valid. And it helped me find other people who shared those experiences. One thing that bi women, deal with a lot is that, um, there's this weird, I mean, there's so many levels of erasure, but there's this weird level of erasure that happens. It's kind of like, um, well, isn't everyone a little bit bisexual and, oh, you know, I'm not bisexual. I just, I just don't like labels or whatever, but the way that that ends up affecting us is, um, there's this joke that's like, what's the difference between, uh, a unicorn on TV and a bisexual person. And the joke is, well, they at least call unicorns unicorns and not horses that don't like labels because there's just like this, this lack of people many times because of internalized biphobia or because of biphobia in the culture where people don't name themselves. And then that has the effect of isolating people from their community, the bi community in particular, even though, uh, multi-sexuality spectrum folks like bi and pan people make up the majority of the LGBTQIA plus community were often shut out of like resources and community support. And that's part of the reason that the risk factors are so high. And so by naming, this is who I am, this is who we are, we're more able to find each other and we're more able to um, build the sort of communities that keep us safe and thriving. That's beautiful. Beautiful and ending of that thought there. Um, communities that are safe and thriving. That's what we need. Um, I mean, gosh, like so much of that resonated, you know, with my own experience of finding the power, like the power of, of claiming uh, my identity as a trans woman, like seeing that that's like, yeah, that can be something empowering, not, not mm-hmm. limiting. I mean, I definitely, you know, I think there definitely can be times that people um, choose to let then uh, that, that box be like some sort of comfortable little box that they never want to like think about anything else ever again. Right. Right. Uh, which is where I think, you know, something like, I know, I know you've done a lot of work around like queer theology and like, mm-hmm. uh, that idea of really starting to like break down the binaries of our, of our overall thinking can be uh, right. really powerful. Yeah. Uh, One of the things I frequently tell people when they're first coming out is that we have our whole lives to become. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think by people, we frequently sort of push back against this uh, narrative that we are, it's just a phase or, you know, we can't choose a side or some of these other like negative stereotypes. But what I don't want to happen in pushing back against this idea of like, oh, it's just a phase is that then somehow we get locked into these static identities as if our own self-understanding, our cultural understanding of gender, sexuality, and identity isn't always shifting and changing. And so I tell people like, you know, I say bye now, but like maybe in 10 years, there'll be like some new phrase or some new identity term that like, I don't even know of right now, or maybe doesn't even exist that I'll be like, wow, yeah, actually that fits even better. And I think that doesn't mean that any of the time spent, you know, identifying differently is like bad or that we're somehow like flaky or something. It just, 
it's the, it's human nature and it's good and healthy to continue to like reflect and grow and change and shift. And some of that means that like our identities can be pretty fluid and we should have the freedom to claim what works. And then also the freedom to release, uh, if it doesn't work anymore. Mm, Yeah. That, uh, that reminds me of something from, uh, the, the last episode of the podcast. Uh, we, uh, the, the quote I believe was uh, something along the lines of, you know, you know, I, I was so worried about the, who I was six months ago. And then I realized it was okay to be somebody six months later. Um, and you know, that, that, that same sort of thought that, um, like it, it's okay for us to change. It's okay for, for life to evolve and to, yeah, for identity, you know, this, this idea that we have our whole lives to become, I think that's a, a beautiful way to think about identity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, like I mentioned it a little bit and talking about like this a woman from like the 80s, uh, you know, so like a 60 year old bi woman mm-hmm. who struggled for um, I- including um, bi people in LGBT discourse even back then. Uh, mm-hmm. So as we think about community, which is the kind of the other other pillar of this month's themes, uh, I think about the wider LGBTQIA uh, um, community uh, and I think about how um, bi folks are often left behind in discourse and you've been mentioning it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe uh, tell us a little bit about like your personal experiences in dealing with that? Yeah, I think um, for many of us, it's practically a bi rite of passage to identify as a really enthusiastic ally for a while before we're ready to come out um, even to ourselves. Bit of a trans so, rite of passage too, I think. <laughs> is it? Yeah, yeah. we're like, I just really care about them. Maybe it's, maybe it's across our whole community. I don't know, but just like this, you know, level of denial or something, um, that is part of the process and sort of being okay with something for someone else is a little bit safer than being okay with it for yourself. And so sometimes that can be like the gateway into like, you know, self-acceptance and sort of rooting out some of that denial, But I think, um, you know, bi people, like I mentioned earlier, are the largest part of the LGBTQI plus community, according to many studies. Um, And by bi, in that sense, I mean all non-monosexual identities. So multisexuality spectrum folks like pan or omnisexual would also like fall under that umbrella. So it's strange, really, that there is this level of being undermined or left out of discourse or locked out of resources. But I think um, part of that has to do with this idea of passing privilege um, that some bi people, many bi people experience. And I think um, that what I wish we would have is a little bit more nuanced discussion around what that means. Because I think like, it's very true that, um, you know, I could walk down the street holding hands with my spouse and no one's going to like yell stuff at me out a window or whatever. Right. Like I, that is a privilege that I have. Like I could do my adoption and, um, of my kids and people weren't trying to prevent that legally. So there are definitely privileges that come with quote unquote passing. But I think the the nuance that we lose sometimes is that most of us who are LGBTQIA plus know that actually being in the closet is like maybe safe or necessary for a while, but it's not a life-giving place to be. And in fact, can be pretty violent and we have to like make ourselves really small and cut off parts of ourselves. And so the bisexual experience um, that some people call quote unquote passing privilege 
is honestly a very violent re-closeting of our, of our identities over and over and over. Bisexual people often have to come out many times, sometimes even many times to the same community or same person. And so it's just this like undermining of the validity of an identity. And the effect that that has had then is that we are often at risk. And so that's another nuance to the sort of, um, you know, when compared to monosexual gay men and lesbians, bisexual people have higher rates of things like police brutality experiences, higher rates of uh, sexual assault and domestic violence, higher rates of heart disease, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, higher rates of eating disorders. It's all these things, right? And I'm talking not higher rates than straight people, higher rates than monosexual people who are LGBTQI or, you know, lesbians and gays. So it's like, there is definitely many levels of privilege, but the way that that ends up playing out can mean that what, what ends up happening in the lived reality of bi people is a lot of danger and a lot of, um, just like want, like want of resources, a lot of like need that gets unmet. So I think, um, I think that's like, it's one of the tools of empire or, you know, we can say cis het norma, sorry, we can say cis het normativity, one of the sort of like tools of cishet normativity and empire in general is the divide and conquer method, right? So LGBTQIA plus people experience oppression across the board. It shows up in different ways. It might show up to different degrees depending on, you know, other intersections of identity, but all LGBTQIA plus people in a heteronormative society experience oppression. And so what has often happened is that capitalism and scarcity of resources, as well as our own trauma, has frequently turned us against each other. And so there's this, you know, scrambling over the very limited resources between a whole bunch of traumatized people instead of asking why is why is there this scarcity in the first place and like why do we need these resources in the first place and who then or what then is really the enemy here because my enemy is not actually monosexual gay men and lesbians and i'm not their enemy either even if sometimes we've all bought into narratives that pit us against each other the you know real enemy in this situation is the systemic discrimination and queer antagonism that we're all facing yeah, you know, the ways that trauma, especially like when when lots of people are coming with that trauma can uh, really break down community if it's not acknowledged. And yeah, you know, um, I mean, that even has me thinking about it in ways that I've uh, that I've not thought about it before. But in terms of thinking about, yeah, that, like that that profound pain, because I mean, you know, there's uh, it would be a whole other podcast episode to talk about like the, the discourse around uh, mm. trans women and um, male privilege and things like that. The, the, that's a whole, a whole world of discussion, but you know, there, there's, there's much that same level of just like not acknowledging that like, sure, maybe the world might be treating us one certain way, but like, that doesn't mean that we're not like literally miserable on like the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah. So yeah, that 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 had me thinking there about even my own personal experiences. Yeah. Um. So, like, what ways, you know, as a as a thinker and a writer, um, how do you see identity and community, like these two concepts, like connecting with each other, feeding into each other? How does like being part of a community shape your identity? You know, like the yeah, how do you see them connecting. Yeah. So, I think. Um, even though like we've, I, we just talked a lot about sort of the way that by phobia, by invisibility, by, by erasure has like harmed me and other by people. Um, it has actually been through the queer community that I really healed a lot of my internalized by phobia. And so like, while I guess what I would say is that community has this amazing power to heal or harm. And, you know, communities aren't perfect because they're made up of people. So many times communities end up doing some sort of, you know, combination of those things. But for me, I grew up very obviously bisexual, except for in very deep denial. Um, and I just always sort of told myself, you know, you're not queer enough. You don't count your experiences don't matter, whatever. Um, and that was reinforced by some people, and that sort of deepened my internalized sense of, of biphobia. But what happened to like really help the beginning of my healing of that was being in St. Louis and in St. Louis, the activist community is overwhelmingly LGBTQI plus, or at least maybe not, maybe not always numbers wise, but there's just like a core group of a lot of organizers and activists that are LGBTQI plus and, um, there's the Metro trans umbrella group, which organizes in St. Louis. And they are just like, so rad and so, um, amazing and part of many other social movements. And so I really hadn't experienced queer community before that I grew up again, like very closeted in white suburbia. Like I had girl, I had a girlfriend, like that I called my girlfriend, her name was Melissa, I had plenty of girls that I called friends that I would, you know, have sort of secret relationships with, but I, it was all a thing that you didn't talk about or you downplayed or whatever. It was never something that I understood as like valid or real. And even in college, I graduated college in 2010 and, you know, back then, like we still had don't ask, don't tell. I think we still had the defense of marriage act back then. Like it was a very, it was a very different time. And so I didn't have a queer community. I didn't, I maybe knew a handful of LGBTQIA plus people, but like, I didn't feel like I was included in that. And sometimes I was, you know, actively excluded from that. But once I eventually moved to St. Louis, I was like invited to the queer social events. I was like at the very queer coffee house. I was around all these queer activists. And anytime that I would say something about like not really counting or not really mattering or not really being queer enough, these other queer people would be like, no, like you are enough. We claim you you count, you matter, you're one of us. And so going to pride events with people and having relationships with people and just generally being around a community helped form my identity because, um, and do a lot of healing for me. And so I think that is the power of community, especially with things like gender and sexuality, which are, you know, social constructs, uh, very, very real social constructs with like 
real implications, but again, social constructs that change in different times and places and cultures and stuff. It's like, in order to like understand myself, I need these other people to either see how are we similar? How are we different? I need the level of like encouragement and affirmation. Um, and so for me, community has been so huge in my story. And it's one of the reasons again, that I'm so bifurious and militantly bisexual is that I didn't have bi role models growing up. The only like bi women that I ever even really heard about was like pornography. There weren't like bi celebrities. I didn't know any bi people. At least I didn't know that I knew any. And so part of the reason that I do share about my experiences so much is to help create some of that community and sort of maybe like pay it forward. Um, another example of like a really healing community was I actually first initially, it came out in a class in undergrad that was called lesbian studies. It was a lesbian studies class. And we just did all these reflections, um, journal reflections. And I kind of, uh, was forced to stop being in denial about being bisexual. And my professor was like a self-identified dyke, just like older woman, older than me. And like, was so encouraging when I came out, like would very gently push back against my internalized biphobia, would celebrate my identity, like baked me a cake when I came out. All of that was like so huge and important that I can't imagine, I can't imagine figuring out my identity or being comfortable with myself without a sense of community, because it's just so often this sense of isolation is like, honestly, very confusing. Hmm. When, especially, um, uh, thinking back to what you were talking about earlier, when you were talking about growing up with this, with this feeling of being on the outside like that, Ooh, that, that speaks to, to my soul. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that constant, like almost imposter syndrome of like, I don't, I don't feel like I really belong here. So mm -hmm. yeah, like finding that community, uh, finding those role models, is, it's just so powerful. And I know, uh, I feel like I'm, I, I've often been motivated, motivated in the same way of like, you know, how, how can I be a role model for the next generation or yeah. can I have somebody else come out of the closet? Yeah. I mean, there's, there really is such power, uh, in community and in being able to, to help each other. Um, yeah. when I was at this last church that I was working at, which is a very queer church, right? Like hired a gay pastor before, it was like officially okay in the ELCA to even do that. So very, you know, subversive. Um, and I was at this church and I, again, was just like my militant bisexual self wouldn't shut up about it. And there were so many people who had grown, you know, grown up or been around a part of this community for so long. Um, but they were like, even so, some of these sermons are the first times I'm really feeling affirmed or seen as like a bisexual person. And I just was like really floored by that because again, we're not talking about a queer antagonistic place. We're not talking about a place that like doesn't affirm leadership and relationships of LGBTQIA plus people. We're actually talking about a space that does affirm those things. And yet speaking specifically like to my experience in this way, it was still pretty like radical and countercultural 
And it had the effect of making some people uncomfortable, but making a lot of people feel like they didn't even know that it was missing in their life until it was there. And then they're like, ah, this is the healing thing that I need, or like this matters so much to me. I think um, having having this, this shared background of being involved with, you know, faith work and, and mm-hmm. in a different varieties and uh, with LGBT identities. Yeah, like it, there's, there's really some rooms for some magic there. And I know uh, one of the questions I had for you was like, you know, how has finding these affirming communities, uh, these affirming faith communities specifically, has that played a role in like helping shape your identity even further? I guess would be the the, the term further yeah. definition. I I never know if it's further or farther. I'm not like <laughs> good at those things, but Millennial yeah, problems. I, th- I know, I know. Um, I think for me again, community has to do a lot with healing and. For me, um, and I'm, I'm very careful to say for me in this instance, because I very much know that this is not the same for everyone, but for me, so much of my harm about my sexuality and identity growing up came from a church setting. It came from growing up in purity culture where there was, you know, compulsory heterosexuality. There was, a, you know, shame around bodies, shame around sex, shame around all of that stuff. Um, and my church, my home church growing up, actually, after the ELCA decided to give churches the option to affirm LGBTQIA plus people in leadership and do marriages, um, my home church left the ELCA. And I was very vocal about how messed up that was. And I wasn't even actually out to them then. This was 2009. I was like out to some people, but I wasn't out to my church, but even just being vocally against their decision was enough to push me out of that church. Like I got kicked out. So, um, that was very painful. And of course, like the experiences growing up around purity culture and shame and queer antagonism in general was very, um, harmful growing up. And so for, for many people, that source of trauma, like the church being a source of trauma or faith being a source of trauma means that like they need to not be in those spaces. And so I like very much affirm that sometimes the faithful thing is to leave and to love yourself and care for yourself and find community other places. But for me, what ended up happening was I needed affirming spaces to heal from that spiritual abuse and religious trauma. So being in a place where I could start to come out a little bit more, my church in California um, at the time, or eventually being in St. Louis and working for a bishop who was very affirming, um, who had a queer daughter who being in a city that like has a lot of queer people. Um, and then also, you know, the churches that I was involved in there were very affirming. And then being here actually in Chicago and at LSTC, we're like, everybody is bisexual, not everybody, but like seriously, so many, I think it ended up being like a third of my class was LGBTQIA plus of some flavor. And so, um, there's this healing aspect of unlearning the toxic stuff and learning something new. So I think for me, once I left those toxic 
church spaces, I sort of knew, okay, maybe God isn't who they're saying God is. Maybe the Bible doesn't say these things that they're saying that it says. Maybe even if the Bible does say some of these things that this is not how we read the Bible and we have the opportunity and responsibility to like push and pull and be in conversation with the Bible and with our faith communities and all of these things in order to like, you know, find what is right and what is good. And having, you know, having the sort of old way torn down, there was this vacuum left. And some of these queer communities helped me to fill that vacuum that not only does the Bible not say these horrible queer antagonistic things um, in some of the verses that it's, that are usually used as, you know, clobber passages against us. But in fact, there are many moments in the Bible, many heroes of faith, many aspects of God that are incredibly queer. And so not only is it not bad to be LGBTQIA+, it's not bad to be bisexual, it's actually a gift. And we have a special kinship because of our identity and experiences with the divine. And so that has been really, really important to me. Um, having a faith community that wasn't just so that it wasn't just that I rejected this old stuff that hurt me, but that I was able to be a part in reconstructing something life-giving and to continue to do that in community and publicly and um, with the hopes of helping other people and learning from other people too. Yeah, there can be some, some real beauty in that, uh, I feel like I keep using the word beautiful in this, but you know, in my in my heart, it is uh, like this idea of being able to to find that healing uh, once you've recovered from those those painful past experiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. Um, so, kind of pivoting to the to the last little bit of like your introduction, we talked about community organizing. So, with mm-hmm. community being uh, one of our themes. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that, your experiences and like what kind of drives you in your community work? Yeah. A lot of times I say that, uh, my sort of identity as a pastor, identity as a parent and identity as a community organizer all use like the same muscle. Like to me, they're part of the same substance and it's honestly kind of the same job. And what the common thread in that is that all of these roles are all about relationships. So like community organizing and faith at their best is supposed to be built on relationships. The idea in community organizing is that if we define power as the ability to change things or make a difference, that our power resides in our relationships. And so we can become more powerful. We can become more able to change the world for good by building relationships where we deeply know each other and care for each other and can work together to get things done. So I think that that is like community organizing is like a great name for like what it is. Like it really names what it is. It's like, instead of having, you know, all of us have all these different webs of relationships that are just like organic and, um, you know, a part of just like living and being a human. But what community organizing does is very intentionally, uh, organizes relationships and people so that we can build something on purpose. There's like some really great stuff about like those friendships or relationships that just sort of happen and you just like click. 
Um, and like those have like a really important role. And there's something really cool about intentionally gathering around a shared identity, a shared need, a shared experience and saying, Hey, like let's on purpose get to know each other so we can make life better for us and for the people that we care about. Um, And in my tradition, we talk a lot about the kingdom of God or the reign of God and what that looks like. And for me, working towards that, being a co-creator with God in this new world that is full of liberation and love for everyone is really the same tools that we're talking about in community organizing, but but by a different name, the way that we can better love ourselves, love God, love the earth, love one another is all about like really diving deep into these relationships. And from these relationships, like a a byproduct or an intention is to build something together. Um, And the cool thing about building something together with people is that you actually really get to know them even better. So I think, um, there's like so much overlap with community organizing principles for me. I think, you know, I grew up, I didn't know what a community organizer was. I I guess I knew what an activist was, but I didn't really know how community organizing worked. And, um, looking back, there's like some things, you know, I got in trouble growing up, um, at school, like in junior high for protesting the Iraq war, not standing for the pledge of allegiance when I was like in seventh grade and stuff. Like there was definitely like always, fire in me or whatever, but I didn't really know what community organizing was, um, in a real way until the Ferguson uprising. And then I saw all of these people, many of them first time activists, just pouring organically out into the streets. And then what I saw once we were all out in the streets together is the way that people through a shared experience of experiencing the police violence and militarization through shared experiences for the black and Brown and indigenous organizers there, or other shared values or dreams, we were able to build something both in our relationships and something that affected the greater world. So Ferguson was really what kind of introduced me to community organizing like in the formal sense. And then in Chicago, I continued to get like more training and experience too. But I think there's just like so much overlap with the way that my faith plays out the way that I understand community in general and the principles of community organizing. Well, that to me feels like a, an excellent place for us to uh, to end this as we're getting a little bit on the longer end. Uh, yes. So I want to just extend the, the deepest of thanks for uh, coming and joining us. Uh, where could people find you uh, online? Yeah, um, I am on Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter at How Now Brown Dowd. Um, I am also on TikTok at L Dowd Ministry, or you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash L Dowd Ministry or at ldowd.com. Um, and I'd love to hear from any of you at ldowd.com. You can sign up for my newsletter. If you're interested in hearing more about the book, I basically very rarely send out stuff because I don't, I know our inboxes are like overflowing. And especially as a lot of us are doing our jobs digitally, it can be kind of overwhelming. So I send out like the very occasional update about what's going on with the book, but that will be the place where people can pre-order uh, once it becomes available, like that'll be one of the first places that's notified. So ldowd.com is the website. And I would say like a lot of the 
public facing ministry stuff happens on the other platforms, but the platform where you can see the most is facebook.com slash ministry. Awesome. And I'll make sure to include those on our show notes as well for anybody listening. I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. And I will end with this quote from